If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of John, John chapter 15. We are in a series, um, started last week, it'll end next week, just a short series before we dive into the book of Esther. We were, are in a series entitled, We Can Trust the Bible. And last week, fought hard to articulate that the Bible we hold is God's Word and we can trust it. Today, the uh, aim of today is that God's Word is for our joy. And then next week, uh, Josh Gallagher will preach on God's Word sufficient for the soul. So as we dive in, I just want to read John 15, 8 through 11. John 15, 8 through 11. We're going to be in a lot of different verses and a lot of different places, but we'll let this be the launch pad out of which we will seek to hear from the Lord. The Word of God says this, John 15, verses 8 through 11. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to me my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Miracle is too small a word to articulate that the perfect love that the Father has for the Son is how much Jesus loves us. And then, miracle of miracles, we are asked to sit and abide in that love, to take up residence in the love of God for us, Father, I pray that we would be found so secure in your love for us, proven by the cross, power confirmed by the resurrection. We would be so secure in your definitively proclaimed love for us that we would make it our great aim our life's ambition to be near to you, to treasure you, and to give you away until we see you face to face. Father, please, in this moment, may we treasure you together. And would you send us out with a sense of confidence and security to tell others about your great love. Please, Lord, I ask. I ask for your mercy now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Have you ever had a person that you really just wanted to talk to? Think about it. You really just want to talk to him or her. It could be someone that you really respect what they might have to say and you just like, I wish I could get 30 minutes with that person and they just speak to me some truth. I get to ask them questions in dialogue. It could be somebody that you admire that you watch on TV and you're just like, yes, I want to talk to them. It could be a spouse. It could be a child. Even when you want to talk to a friend, and let's just say they frustrate you, and then I don't want to talk to them anymore. You might have had those moments in your heart. Isn't it odd that even when your heart says, I don't want to talk to them anymore, you want to tell somebody how you don't want to talk to them anymore. We have this desire to talk, to speak, to be heard, to hear. It could be music. Somebody loves the same kind of music and you love this you just want to celebrate the type of music that you like. It could be sports. Yes, putting all fears aside, Tennessee did win yesterday, okay? Just letting you know, and no one probably in this room cares. <laughs> but yes, they did. And sometimes when your team wins, you just want to tell somebody. You just want to talk about it. Why is it when we take trips that we want to tell somebody about the trip we took? There's stories that happen to us and we just want to talk. Because speaking is this form of, it's this sense of celebrating what's dear to the heart. It's this, it's this sense of how intimacy is created. When you speak, you're letting someone into your life. It's like this invitation of, I want you to know me. Someone you've just wanted to talk to. And now you have 30 minutes to talk to them. You move heaven and earth for these kind of moments, right? If I told you tomorrow that this one person that you've really wanted to talk to, this person that you've longed to be with, they're going to call you at 2 o'clock. You'd change things in order to have that conversation. It's that important. Speaking is that important. You want to hear from them. God has spoken. He's spoken. Definitively, he has opened the door to his privacy. As Carl Henry said. And he's let us in. And he's saying, I want you to know me. I've spoken because I love you. I've spoken because the greatest need in your life is that you, you hear from me. And by him saying, I want to speak to you, it's this invitation into intimacy, into communion, into fellowship. The God of the universe wants to be with you and has definitively talked to us in his word. Dear friends, last week I spent a lot of time going over kind of a lot of facts to remind us or inform us that our faith is not blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. 
And that our God in remarkable, unprecedented fashion has given us access to him. He has spoken. This is the greatest purpose of this series. Why would you do a three-week series on We Can Trust the Bible? It's not just so that you can have kind of defenses to give as to why you believe the Bible, although that's helpful. We want you to have defenses to preach to your own heart that the Bible is the Word of God and to preach to others that the Bible is trustworthy and is God's Word, but that's not the greatest aim. The greatest aim is that we might, maybe for the first time ever, but the hope is that we would have our hearts reignited for Him and for His Word. The prayer is that he might knock every prop of self-sufficiency out from underneath us and give us the hunger for knowing God and his word. That he would give us a longing just to sit and to be with Jesus in the scriptures. That he would give us an expectation that he has spoken. And although it's like we're a newborn being asked to comprehend physics and the mysteries of the universe, he still invites us in. And he says, know me, sit with me. The greatest prayer for this series is that we would have an expectation that he has spoken and he is speaking through his word to us. That he will change us. He will guide us. He will convict us but only for our good, and he will comfort us, and he will teach us. He will address our fears. He will meet us in our tears. He will set our thinking straight. He will give us wisdom. He will grant us peace. He will ignite hope, and he will fill us with joy. These are the promises that await for us as we sit before the God of the universe who has communicated himself to us in his perfect word. It's the invitation. It's the feast before us. Yes, with sleep in your eyes and the need for a cup of coffee every single morning, he is there. The afternoon that you're in the middle of work and you just need 15 minutes to shove down some food, he's there. When you're exhausted after the end of a day and you don't even know if you can find your way to the bed, but you hope you can because you're going to pass out soon, he's there. The God of the universe has spoken to us in his word and he desires to be with you. Sometimes we just make this too hard. We just make this too hard. This Christian is is about just being with Jesus and allowing him to fill us up from his word. And it changes then how we live. It just changes us. It changes our passions, it changes our desires, it changes how we talk, it changes what we watch, it changes how we fight for faith, it changes everything, it changes how we parent, it changes how we spend our money, it just changes us. We just make it too hard. Sit at his feet with open Bible. Nothing replaces time with him. Nothing. And nothing will provide rest for the soul. You can get rest for the body on the couch and take a good nap, and that's a blessing from the Lord. Amen. And it's fun to watch movies and to be taken into kind of other areas of just your mind going into other places. fun to read books, but it will not give you rest for the soul. 
Rest for the body maybe, but rest for the soul. The only place you can find it is at the feet of Jesus. I've been reading a book called The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Peter Cesaro. I've mentioned it a few times. And he gives this illustration from a fairly obscure story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, verses 13 through 16, you read about the sons of Sceva. You might not have this cross-stitched on a pillow or on a note card on your refrigerator, but the sons of Sceva has a lesson to teach us. Acts 19, 13 through 16 says this, Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists, (laughs) that's what it said, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Let's set the table. You understand what's happening. The followers of Jesus, specifically Paul, were given powers over even evil spirits, and they were casting out evil spirits, and there was healing that was going on. There was power given to his apostles. And so these other individuals are watching this, and they're like, I want this too. I want this power too. And so they say this. I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. It's like, okay, I'm just going to try it. By the Jesus that Paul proclaims, out. If it can make it happen. It says, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Verse 15. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know. And Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Some versions, naked and bleeding. Now, what in the world are you bringing this up for? Peter Cesaro says this. What was the problem with the sons of Sceva? Quote, They skipped over making a long-term investment in a life of loving union, which was the source of Paul's miracles. Let's stop right there before we finish the quote. Where in the world did Paul get the ability to cast out demons? It was because he had sat at the feet of Jesus. He knew Christ. There was a relationship. There was an intimacy. And yet what they wanted was the power without the intimacy. The quote goes on. They skipped over making a long-term investment in a life of loving union and rushed headlong into spiritual realities they did not understand and were woefully ill-equipped to deal with. As a result, they barely escaped with their lives. Whenever we find ourselves wanting the ministry impact of Jesus while simultaneously resisting to spend time with Jesus, we are positioning ourselves for a beating and some variation of being run out of the house naked and bleeding. What's the point? I labor, we pray, this series is so yes, you can find some help with all of your honest questions. You can be reminded that our faith is not blind but reasonable, but our labor is that you would have confidence that God has spoken in His Word 
fully trustworthy, and you would stop and be still and sit with him. If this series only makes your mind think and doesn't make your feet move or your heart bow, we've missed the entire point. We labor because in order for revival to come, genuinely experiencing the power of the presence of Almighty God among us as a people, just let it sink in. I'm not just talking about some crazy phrase that you're just trying to rally people up. Like genuinely, are we praying that Almighty God would meet with us in power and use little old us to make a difference in the world? In order for that to happen, it's very simple. The people of God fall on their face before the living God with open Bible and ask God to do something right here. That there's a hatred for sin. There's a vigilance for holiness. And there is a shocking love for our neighbor. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and heal their land. Please, don't make that about American nationalism. Let's make it about our hearts need healing. Our church needs healing. Our city needs healing. And villages all over the globe need healing by the presence of people who are captured by the love of God. And so... I just want to remind us quickly where we were last week. I want to show us that there are some rivals for the authority of Scripture. And I want to remind us of the beauty, beautiful foundations of God's Word. So let's just look at it. Last week, we remembered this. From our elder affirmation of faith, Scripture, the Word of God written, here's what we stated. We believe that the Bible consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament is the infallible Word of God, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. What I sought to do real quickly, and now I have it in bullet form for you, why can we trust the Bible? The unity of the Bible. The historical accuracy of the Bible. The fulfillment of biblical prophecies. The resurrection of Jesus. What the Bible claims about itself, what Jesus claimed, and how he treated the Bible himself. What Jesus claimed about his own words. The Old Testament says this, but I say this. The claims of the apostles, even Paul's writings called scripture and authoritative. And the self-authenticating power of the scriptures. It changes lives. It takes dead individuals and makes them alive this was all last sermon so i'm not going to hit repeat we move on all of this was meant to say our faith is reasonable god's word can be trusted and it was meant to point you to many resources some of which are out on the table i encourage you to look at them if you have questions But a sermon is not going to be a place where we're just going to go through and answer every single one of your questions. But there are answers. But now, I want you to look at the second point underneath the scripture in our elder affirmation of faith. And it says this. We believe that God's intentions 
revealed in the Bible are the supreme and final authority in testing all claims about what is true and what is right. In matters not addressed by the Bible, what is true and right is assessed by criteria consistent with the teachings of the Scriptures. And friends, the Bible as the sole authority is under attack, always has been and always will be. Jesus told us this is the case. But if all that I said last week is true and the Bible is the Word of God, then it is the sole authority upon which we make all decisions, right and wrong, discerning what is true. It's not other things. It's not our feelings. It's not culture. The Word of God is our sole authority. Listen to what Jesus said about the promised attack on the Bible as sole authority. John 17, 13 through 17 says this. But now I'm coming to you and these things I what? What's the next word? Speak. Remember whose words are authoritative on par with scripture? Jesus is speaking. These things I speak in the world. Why have you spoken your word? Why, why, why did you come and, and speak? In order that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. All of this labor is that your joy would abound. Your heart would be filled up even in the midst of the gravest of sufferings that peace and joy are there. So he says this, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. You see that? I gave them the word, the world hates them. We're under attack, but it's not new, and it won't stop. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I give the word. They will hate you because of this word. They will hate you because of your allegiance to Jesus. You're going to be in a world that hates your worldview. What do you do with that? You stay in the word because the word sets you apart. Doesn't remove you from the world, but it sets you apart. And it helps you, protects you from the evil one. He told us this would be the case. But what are the things that are warring against the Bible as sole authority right now? Tim Keller says this. Most would say that they know that there are many great stories and sayings in the Bible. But today, you can't take the Bible literally. And what they mean is that the Bible is not entirely trustworthy because some parts, maybe many, or most parts, are scientifically impossible historically unreliable, and culturally regressive. Those are three enemies of our day. History, science, the culture. Last week I labored hard to say 
No, the Bible is historically accurate. The scriptures are reliable. We won't run down that road again. And today is not going to be a science lesson. It's not going to be a lesson about a debate between creation and evolution. It's not going to be a debate about can miracles happen and all these things scientific. We're not going there. But here's where I want to just say one thing scientifically. In Tim Keller's book, A Reason for God, which I commend, he basically says science's methodology is aimed at natural causes. The methodology of science is seek to measure, define, clarify natural causes. And their scientific methods many times are helpful. But their methodology hasn't proven that natural causes are the only causes. Are you following me? The scientific methods that they employ do not prove that there are other, that all other causes besides natural causes are ruled out. They cannot prove that with their science. Therefore, to say there is no God or that God can't do miracles, that is supernatural things, that there are supernatural causes in our world is a leap of faith. For the scientists. And they have just run roughshod. Over their own methods. Alvin Plantiga. States this. One such scientist. His name is John McQuarrie. He states. Here's a quote. John McQuarrie perhaps means to suggest. That the very practice of science. Requires that one reject the idea. For example. Of God raising someone from the dead. All miracles, those are supernatural. They cannot be proven by science and therefore they all have to be rejected. One of those such miracles would be that Jesus was raised from the dead. A big big miracle that we kind of hinge a lot on. Understatement of the century. He says, this argument that the very practice of science requires that one reject the idea of God raising someone from the dead. This argument is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his lost car keys only under the street light on the grounds that the light was better there. In fact, it would go that the drunk one, the drunk one better this, it would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be in the light. Now you're like, I didn't follow that. That was hard for my head. You will here in a second. The only place to find the keys of the universe. Who's the creator? The only place to find the keys of the universe is under the street light of science. It would be too hard to find the keys of the universe somewhere else. Other than the street lights of science. But doesn't it stand to reason that the keys might be in the dark? That the keys might not be underneath the streetlight. They might be around the corner in an alley over here. And the argument is, might there not be a cause that's different than your natural cause? A cause that is supernatural. 
Isn't there a God? A God that accords with the Scriptures. Who has been and is intervening in the world in some meaningful way. Dear friends, the answer is yes. And science cannot disprove supernatural causes. Now, many of us, we struggle with our doubts. Tim Keller highlights this in Matthew 28, 17. Look at this verse. When the disciples saw Jesus raised from the dead. This is the last chapter of the book of Matthew. You following me so far? When the disciples saw Jesus raised from the dead, they worshipped him, but some doubted. (laughs) Okay, it should comfort us a little bit. They like walked with Jesus. They saw him die, and now he's standing in front of him. They could like give him a bear hug. Okay, they saw him eat, and yet they still are having some doubts. It should comfort us a little bit if we struggle at times with doubts. But what is the point of the miracles, namely the miracle of the resurrection? Look at what the passage says. And when they saw him, they what? Say it out loud. When they saw him, they... That's the point. That's the point. Miracles are for worship. They're for adoration of God. The trees are for adoration of God, not to be worshipped themselves. The hiker is on the hike in order that they might be astounded at the glory of God, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. And so, science can be an enemy, but we say the Bible is... The sole authority that science cannot disprove our God. The other one that has become more prominent than science is culture. Things have changed. The Bible is antiquated. I don't feel like this is just or right. So it's our own feelings combined with our new culture that says... The Bible can't be the sole authority. Things have just changed so much over time. So if it wasn't science and it wasn't history, now the bigger argument is it's culture. Tim Keller gives a few points in his book, Reason for God, which I have found very helpful. When someone says the Bible is culturally regressive, antiquated, irrelevant, Help them in these three ways. Help yourself in these three ways too. He said when he was meeting with brand new believers and they were reading the Bible for the first time, there would come a time when they would come across a verse that seemed indigestible. (laughs) Like it was upsetting their stomach, you know, their spiritual stomach. Just like, I can't handle this. Like the verse, slaves be obedient to your masters. And it's like, if that's in there, I'm out. Close it up, put it aside. No. And he says, there's three ideas that you need to think about. Whenever you come across things that seem to be culturally irrelevant, or you just feel like are foolish, you don't like them, 
three things. Indigestible verses might not teach what they appear to teach. So you could be mistaken on what you're thinking that means. Two, check yourself for cultural superiority. And three, don't reject primary teachings because of secondary ones. And so I'll just walk through them real quickly. Indigestible verses might not teach what they appear to teach. The slavery mentioned in the scriptures is not the antebellum period of slavery. These individuals, they were able to own property. They had more rights, could have more money in the scriptures I'm speaking, not in American history. But in the scriptures, it's not American slavery. It's not. We think slave trade and human trafficking, the slavery of the Bible is nowhere near that. It's basically employment. It's a commitment to an employer. And yet if you read it as American slavery, it should be hated and denounced apologized, abhorred, whatever needs to happen, it's sense of, but that's not what the Bible's teaching. You've got to understand. So, number one, it might not teach what it appears to teach. Two, check yourself for cultural superiority. Here's a quote. To say something is regressive, that is, to reject the Bible as culturally regressive, is to assume that you have now arrived at the ultimate historic moment from which all that is regressive and progressive can be discerned. That belief is surely as narrow and exclusive as the views in the Bible you regard as offensive. I have the market on all cultures from all times. Sometimes that's how we approach things. In our naivety, in our youth. Whatever it is, we have to check ourselves for cultural superiority. Number three, is don't reject primary teachings because of secondary ones. Here's a quote. Don't reject the Bible for what are areas of controversy for that which is more core to the Christian faith. It's not that these other things aren't important, but Keller says, I can't accept, if someone says to Keller, I can't accept the Bible if what it says about gender is outmoded or outdated I would respond to them that with this question are you saying that because you don't like what the Bible says about sex or gender that Jesus couldn't have been raised from the dead let's make sure we have first things first or he goes on to say to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God he wouldn't have any views that upset you. Does that really make sense? Because any meaningful relationship has times when it upsets you, right? All married people should say yes, amen. Any meaningful relationship will have seasons that upset you. You will disagree. You don't get meaningful to just always agree. So surely, if there's a God in the universe, maybe he might upset your views sometimes. And so, 
The Elder Affirmation of Faith 1.3 says this. It's all under the Word of God. We believe God's intentions are revealed through the intentions of inspired human authors even when the author's intention was to express divine meaning of which they were not fully aware as for the example in some of the Old Testament prophecies. Thus, the meaning of biblical text is a fixed historical reality rooted in the historical unchangeable intentions of its divine and human authors. However, while meaning does not change, the application of that meaning may change in various situations. Nevertheless, it is not legitimate to infer a meaning from a biblical text that is not demonstrably carried by the words which God has inspired. We hang on the words. Those words have meanings. We want God's intended meaning. And then we apply that meaning in a way that is consistent with the Scriptures. Example, when the Spirit says He gives us self-control, I don't think Paul had in his mind in Galatians 5 that we needed self-control with iPhones. And yet that is an application for today. We need self-control. Doesn't change the meaning that the Spirit of God gives self-control. It changes the application. The Bible is not out of date. Its meaning is solid and fixed. It can be trusted. And so finally, we must understand what is it that is so foundational? If we're so tempted to get fixed on all of these secondary things, what is central? What is central? The Bible is sole authority. What is central to the Bible? And you could have whole series, whole sermons on all of these. I'm just going to run through them. The Bible has a grand story, and it's got a great hero. When you read the Bible, you should read all of the Bible. Even those controversial verses, even those things that confuse you, you should read it in light of the grand story. The grand story many times has been articulated with four hooks. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Some might call it restoration. This is what the Bible communicates from beginning to end. It is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. God is the creator. This world is broken because of sin. My wife and I were running or walking. We were walking yesterday. We were walking. And as I'm walking, there was a, a, one of our neighbors was putting something in the back of her car. And as she put it in there, it was like two scooters, like little, not motorized, but little, I forget what you call them, bad boys. Do that to them, scooters. So she puts them in there. They're metal. And as she puts them in there, she sets one on her thumb. And she just like, ow, like that right there. She didn't want to acknowledge us. You know, she was just like, hopefully they didn't see it. You could just read your mind almost. But I thought, that happened because sin is in the world. That happened because our world is broken. My body hurts at times because it's decaying. This world is broken. If Adam and Eve did not sin, this would be completely different. Now I'm a sinner by nature because of my parents, Adam and Eve, and I'm a sinner by choice. 
And not only is there sin inside of me, there's sin done to me, and then our whole world is under the canopy of the brokenness, the tragedy of sin. Just think about what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. For the first time, it's, it's almost mind-boggling, but for the first time they felt fear and they hid. They felt shame. And they went as if they could hide from God because sin was that bad. They've never experienced not wanting to be with God. And for the first time, their fear led them to run away rather than draw near. Fear used to create a sense of awe, and now it created a sense of distance. Sin is horrible. It is destructive. And so the whole Old Testament talks about law meant to be given in order to try to curb sin, and law couldn't do it. The whole story of the Bible is that humanity fails at fixing the heart. And yet our culture is trying to tell us humanity can do it. It's a dead end street. Our worldview shaped by the Bible. Shaped by the Bible. Is that our world is broken. This week. My. I had a. A cousin, so it's my mom and dad's niece, who had a baby. It was actually last weekend or a few weeks ago, and then they went to visit this baby um, this weekend. And while they were getting ready, packing and getting ready to leave, they found out that my dad's oldest brother ended up dying in Atlanta. 90 years old, lived a long life, but it's still, it's never easy to lose a brother. And so the mixture of emotions to go and to hold this newborn and to celebrate life while at the same time contemplating death. And God brought my mind to John 11. And here's what I sent my mom and dad after we got to pray together some. John 11, 23 through 27 says this. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Now there's a good verse for a believer who dies. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Definitive, case closed. He's the resurrection and the life. And yet, just a few minutes later, Jesus is found dealing with grief. And he says this. It says that Jesus wept. Over the loss of his friend. If he knew he was the resurrection and the life. Why would he cry? Because this is the story of the scriptures. We have a creator. Our sin has messed up the world. There is a redeemer. His name is Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. But we long for a day when brokenness will be no more. And while we long, we can have hope and still cry tears. Just like our Savior did. Just like our Savior did. 
This is the story of the scripture. There is a hero, a great redeemer, and it's not humanity. It's Jesus Christ himself. He is the resurrection and the life. And we long for a new creation, not the old garden. The old garden only knew God as creator. Now we will know God as redeemer. We'll know what it means to be forgiven. We'll know grace because the highlight of all of the end is the lamb that was slain. And so there's not only a grand story that all scripture needs to be read through, but there's a great hero And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Jesus said, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There is no greater purpose to our life than to behold the beauty of Jesus. I was talking with one brother and he prayed over me this week and he says, Oh God, help us to be distracted with only Jesus. And I was like, That is what I want to pray. Let me be distracted with only Jesus. Only Christ. Do you realize he shapes everything? Just listen to verses. I'm going to give them like shotgun. Here it goes. 2 Corinthians 4, 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Because God said, let light shine out of darkness. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And we have the treasure of Jesus in jars of clay. Jesus is in us. Why? So that the passing power belongs to God and not to us. Colossians says... Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What is our life meant to be about? Look at Colossians 1. Jesus. It is him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone that in all wisdom we may present everyone mature in Christ. Dear friends, Christ is our life. Yes, he is. (laughs) I'm going to argue with you. (laughs) Christ is our life. The grand story of the scriptures is creation, fall, redemption, new creation. And the hero of the Bible is Jesus. And everything we do is about him. So, I give you this quote from J.C. Ryle. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? If we can trust the Bible, what do we do with this? Begin reading your Bible this very day. The way to do a thing is to do it. There's rocket science. And the way to read the Bible is actually to read it. It is not meaning or wishing or resolving or intending or thinking about it. That will not advance you one step. You must positively read. And if you cannot read yourself, you must persuade somebody else to read to you. But one way or another, through eyes or ears, the words of Scripture must actually pass before your mind. George Mueller said this, I saw 
more clearly than ever that the first and great primary business to which I sought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. And so, dear friends, Isaiah 66, 2 says this. This is the one that Jesus will look at. The one who is humble and contrite and finish the sentence and trembles at his word. May God create a trembling, humble, contrite people that sit with Jesus day by day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm reminded of that old song, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, Jesus loves me for the Bible tells me so. Everything hangs upon the scriptures. And Father, I just ask, I ask, oh God, I ask that you would, by your grace, convince our hearts of the invitation and give us a hunger to be with Jesus. Father, please, day after day, overcome our fatigue, our low desire, revive our hearts, cause us to do this very thing, to sit with you in your word. And now as we take the Lord's Supper, oh God, please meet with us. May we confess what we need to confess and celebrate what we need to celebrate. Father, work in our hearts and make us more like Jesus. So right now we're going to take the Lord's Supper. There's two tables in the front, one in the back. If you're a follower of Jesus, get the bread and the cup and spend this time in prayer with him. If you're not a follower of Jesus, don't take of this meal, but confess your sin. Ask him to change your heart and declare that he died in your place doing what you could not do and ask him to save you from your sins. Wherever you find yourself, let's take the Lord's Supper together.